Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. Now, um, good things going on. The Mariner YouTube channel has just gone through 5,000 subscribers. So if you haven't already, please consider going over and having a look at YouTube and uh, clicking on subscribe there and like a few videos, that kind of stuff. Um, I do realize at the moment that I'm speaking to like a, a dedicated band of people who are still interested to hear this podcast. Um, that is because... Um, what happens over time with podcasts is that people subscribe and then gets automatically downloaded. It still counts as the same number of listens and the same number of downloads and all the rest of it. It's just an aspect of podcasts that people are receiving them, um, you know, without really kind of like applying themselves to the to, to obtaining each one. Uh, so the point being, um, we went through a very odd eye of a needle about three months ago, which is connected to me not doing the Global Solo Challenge. As part of getting ready for that, I'd been approached by a um, publicity company who wanted to kind of take control of the little bits of social media I've got and then have that control and be that uh, voice for me and operate those systems whilst I was away at sea. Unfortunately, they screwed up um, a very key element of how the uh, podcast works in the background, revealing to me, unfortunately, their lack of experience. And what they did is uh, completely change the title of the RS RSS feed, which is um, the, the, the coding which uh, allows your device to receive the uh, the podcast. So um, those people who have subscribed previously and haven't been back to kind of check out what's going on, um, they will not have got the new RSS feed and there's no automatic downloads going on for them. If you are listening to this, it's because you've kind of sought it out, sought out this, sought out me. Hello, <laughs> it's you and me. Um, and that means that we've gone from about 2,000 people listening to this on each uh, download to about 300 people listening to it. So it'll grow back. It always does. Um, it's also absolutely important on me to be very much more consistent in 2024. I think that little shot in the arm from YouTube is really going to help. Um, it always been a kind of funny target in my head that I thought if it can get to 5,000, then... Um, it can work. It can be a, a bigger thing. Um, I'm in a key transition at the moment where I go from, yeah, I'm not doing the Global Solar Challenge, clearly. Um, what am I doing? Because I'm also not doing the corporate charter stuff that I used to do with Spartan Ocean Racing because it's just not possible to do that anymore. You literally can't insure the boat to do that um, in a way that I'd be happy with. Um, I, I want to really emphasize that whilst I'd like to do it, um, I don't know how other people are doing it because uh, I cannot get insurance to do that kind of work with that kind of boat, regardless of who the captain is or um, anything else. It's uh, it's a tricky thing. So I've got to look to what's going to happen going forward. Social media is uh, a great option. Um, we don't have to have people coming onto the boat um, who are themselves paying to go on trips. You know, before we used to film things with people who were on paid trips that they were paying for. It, uh, it's just not going to work like that anymore. So I'm interested to see how I can kind of develop things going forward. But doing this podcast, uh, doing the Mariners Library podcast and doing the YouTube videos, definitely going to be focusing on that. And um, yeah, a great pity that we couldn't do the Global Solo Challenge. Basically, what happened there was I got promised a uh, very, very s small amount of money just literally to plug the last gap in my finances to buy the rigging, the standing rigging for the Open 60. So we got the entire hull sorted out. We've got the anti foul all on. We've got the engine service. We've got everything ready to go. And then it came down to how much is it going to actually cost right now, right here, to go and put this rigging on this boat. And even when we transferred a lot of the components over to being um, standing rod rigging rather than composite rigging, we still couldn't get the... Um, the rigging job to be anywhere near the sponsorship amount. That rigging job had been quoted at just under 50,000 US dollars like 18 months ago. Um, 
now the guy's going and looking on a very short time span, absolutely, to, to rush Kevlar components for the forestays and the backstays and stuff. The price is through the roof. You're talking like eight thousand US dollars for one forestay uh, in the composite material required by that rig setup. It's like the boat has four forestays. It just isn't going to happen. We can't do that. We haven't really got you know, what exactly we needed and no extra. So it was very sad to see that uh, project kind of slip away. But it's you and me, um, as it has been, I guess, for a long time. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Thank you very much for your attention and for sticking with it and coming back and checking and getting the new RSS feed title. It means a lot. Um, I'm going to do today is uh, jump in with... Um, literally a newspaper article which i found i realized with these you know i still call it questions and tangents but i'm just going to talk about whatever the hell i bloody well want to because otherwise if i get myself too constricted with some kind of pattern um me as someone with adhd i don't like the sound of that i just want to be able to chat about whatever's uppermost in my head and uh today this this happened so uh, now you're going to hear about it so um as i have mentioned ad nauseum there's another podcast it's called the mariner's library but what has to happen is I have to get the book out of what is literally physically the Mariner's Library, which is this massive shelf of books here or massive sorry, shel book shelves of, of books alongside the desk here. Um, there's about 500 books. Uh, the original library I received was from Rudy Hussey, who was a, a sailor and a collector of uh, sailing books. We realized that of the thousand books in the library, about 500 were about the technicalities of yacht design. He was obviously very interested in, in liners and, and uh, Cunard and White Star and those guys and transatlantic liners. Um, about 500 of them were log books. And I think that's really what it is that I want to share because there's no other avenue for this information to ever be shared with anybody else and uh, a sailing story a hundred years ago that's like 1924 that's that is similar enough to sailing stories today that you'll absolutely be able to uh, uh, understand and enjoy them so i have 500 books here and what i do is just kind of go along the edges of the books and see like oh, okay what can i i can tell you now in front of me i've got the second book of boats uh morris griffiths's book dream ships the great iron ship taking a little sailing ship uh, Cape Horn, Tinkerbell, The Wind Calls the Tune, Give Me a Ship to Sail. These are just titles of books alongside here. So I look through all of them and pick one out. The one I picked today is called White Sails Shaking, and it's edited by a guy called Ira Henry Freeman. I have no clue who that is. But the inside dust jacket had such a good write-up on it that I was like, hey, I'm going to put this into the Mariner's Library. So brilliant. We've now got a book and we're going to start to record it. I open up the book and thumb through it to make sure like all the pages are there. You know, it's not some um, going to create a problem for me later on and out tumbles a, um, a newspaper article, which it says uh, it's kind of ripped out enough of the newspaper that I can't tell anything much more about. It. It's got an advert for, well, it looks like camping equipment on the back side of it. <laughs> you can buy a Wrangler adult three pound sleeping bag for Ten eighty-eight, ten dollars eighty-eight. Ladies and teens saddle Oxfords. That's uh, looks like a kind of slightly heeled ladies' broke shoe. Three dollars ninety-seven. Oh my God! Uh, you can buy the Monopoly game board for uh, two dollars ninety-seven, or get yourself a chopper bicycle here. Boys and girls dragster bike, thirty-nine dollars. So, um, a different time. And uh, Rudy has. Uh, included a lot of these books he's including a lot of these books like little newspaper articles and notes and pictures and all sorts of stuff because uh, this would be concurrent for him he passed away a number of years ago now but um 
he would have been in his prime reflecting these books in just around this uh, period where this newspaper article comes from, which it says here, it says Globe 11974. So it's a North American date um, uh, format. So it's the 11th month, the 9th day. So it's November 1974 and it's the Boston Globe. And uh, it, it caught my attention because it's got an image of an absolutely wrecked yacht. Imagine a yacht has gone aground like an old fashioned boat with a, a counter stern and a and high spoon bow, a big deep keel. And it's gone aground and it's been there for like months and months and months. The mast has gone. Well, it'd be years and years and years, right? The mast has gone. The decks have gone. The coach house roof has gone. The cockpit is entirely gone. The engine's gone. The keel's gone. The prop's gone. Like it's just the shell of a hull, right? That's the image at the top of this newspaper article. And the headline is uh, Scavengers Strip Beached Sloop. The next picture down is of literally four ribs of the boat uh, sticking out of the sand with a little stub of the keelhead uh, attached to it. And that's it. I then read the subheading. It says, Picked clean by scavengers, remains of sleek racing sloop uh, lie on Barnstable Beach a few days, few days after vessel ran aground. Even less is left in photos taken on Thursday of this week. <laughs> so I was like, brilliant. I'm going to share this with the two or three hundred solid people who are listening to uh, whatever it is I'm talking about, because I think you guys are probably pretty interested in this as well. So from the Boston Globe in 1974, I bring to you the story titled Scavengers Strip Beach Sloop. Now, I'm going to interject along the way. You know, I won't be able to help myself. But uh, just to confirm now, if you don't get to the very end of this, this book uh, that I'm going to be reading on the Mariner's Library is called White Sails Shaking, and it's an anthology of 24 uh, stories um, all brought together and, and published in 1948. So uh, this story, somehow Rudy has decided that this scavengers stripping this beach sloop in 1974 is somehow connected to the uh, whatever's going on in uh, this book we're going to be reading. So if you've sound, if any of this sounds interesting to you, check that out and check out also the YouTube channel. As I said, those uh, little subscriptions and uh, and comments and stuff really make that zing along. The way the algorithm works, it rewards success with more success. So the bigger the channel gets, the more impressions it gets, and that means more people get to see it. So. Um, without any further ado, uh, here we go. Scavenger Strip Beach Sloop. Imagine this was your boat. Barnstable. The orgy of destruction happened almost two weeks ago. Like, what a start that is. Oh, my God. <clears throat> OK. And some people here still wince when reminded of it. They'll never forget the ugly scene of a mob reducing a beautiful sailing ship to rubble. There's no words to describe it, said Douglas Colwhite, a Barnstable Town Natural Resources officer. You had to be there. They were like a bunch of vultures. They were predominantly adults. The kind of folk Colwatt and his partner, Joe Blocker, would see around town on a Saturday. This time, however, they were consumed with greed. They said, screamed really, that they were legally salvaging the remains of the 60-foot racing sloop Troll, which had run aground outside Barnstable Harbour on October 27th. There were more than 50 of them, men and women armed with chainsaws, axes and chains. <laughs> this is taking a little bit of effort to not laugh through this. OK, here we go. Hang on. The officers first spotted several boats flitting around the troll, which was on its side in the water, and watched one powerboat leave the scene, towing the cockpit, which had been sawed from the sloop. As the tide went out, more scavengers gathered, some in boats, others in four-wheel drive vehicles, which could drive right up to the boat at low tide. 
Some of them were so intent on getting things off that they ran aground themselves, said Colwatt. The propeller, anchors, sails and halyards were carried off. The mast was cut down. The engine was taken. Someone sawed off the name board and took it away. Now, <clears throat> as a little insert here, please, can we all understand that <laughs> amongst many old men's garages, sheds, attics, basically we've got a boat. <laughs> There's a boat somewhere. Okay, in Boston, you have the troll held in separate pieces. Uh, to, basically, you kidnapped the troll. Let's see if we can get it back. Um, by mid-afternoon on the 28th of October, just 24 hours after the Coast Guard had evacuated the two persons who were sailing the boat, there was little left. It looked like a herring laying on the beach being picked apart by seagulls, said Theodore Crosby of the Crosby Boatyard in Osterville, who must have initially been rubbing their hands together thinking, we're going to get the renovation work on this boat until they realised that we're going to have to build a new boat. Um, both Blocker and Colwart, who were wearing uniforms with badges, tried to reason with some of the plunderers, as people who wear uniforms with badges are often want to do in their minds. It doesn't look that way often to everybody else. But let's, uh, let's get past that. They saved some of the equipment, but the destruction continued. We would have, <laughs> we would have made some arrests, said Colwart, but we didn't know what to charge them with. No charges have been made and no complaint has been filed with the Barnstable police. Huh, okay, that's interesting. The 10-metre boat which was built in... Oh, no. The 10-metre boat which was built in 1927 by Abe King and Rasmussen oh, of Lemwerder in Germany was owned by Franklin Pierce College in Ringe, North Hampshire. Uh, New Hampshire, beg your pardon. New, New Hampshire, this is America. Yes, which received it as a gift in 1969. What? Hang on. It was owned by Franklin Pierce College. Oh, I see. It's a college. It's not a person called Franklin Pierce College. I could, yes, okay. I got it wrong. Uh, Franklin Pierce College in Ringe, which received it as a gift. So it's been donated to the college. Okay. The boat valued at $60,000 was insured for 20000 but Crosby said the figure was deceptive. So who's Crosby here? Okay, right. So... To build that boat and fit it out today could run you as much as $200,000, he said. Well, that would be probably like what? <clears throat> I could look this up online, but I get a bit sick of talking to my smart speaker on everything. Let's imagine that $200,000 in 1974 was like, what's that going to be? It's got to be a million, hasn't it? That'd be like a big fancy house. So let's say it's a million dollar boat. Oh, man. The college agreed in early October to sell the boat to Lance W. Schubach of Springfield, who was one of the persons taken off by the Coast Guard helicopter. Interesting. So the college has sold it to a, another party, Lance W. Schubach, who is then sailing it home. Okay. So it's a million-dollar boat that's been sold, donated to a college, and now the college has sold it. All right. Schubach and his companion, two people on a 60-foot yacht going up the New Hampshire coast. I can tell you where the yacht is. It's all sand dunes all sand dunes and clearly they've tried to sail somewhere where the sand was and they weren't expecting it so these are perhaps inexperienced people who have bought this boat cheap from a college and the cheap has been cheap because they got it donated okay uh, da -da -da. Springback and his companion Steve Pippin also of Springfield and the Shire neither of whom could be reached for comment I bet were sailing the troll from York Maine where the college kept it to Essex Connecticut 
They were heading for the Cape Cod Canal when they got off course and ran aground outside the harbour in an area which has a 12-foot tide. I know exactly where they are. It's that hook on Cape Cod. Yes, it's all sand dunes there. If you get caught in there, um, you're, you're toast. It's, uh, it's quite a big outfall from the Cape Cod Canal coming when it, when it flows from the west to the east. And um, you have to kind of like jockey around outside and wait. Obviously, with a new uh, boat, it's pretty easy. Although this is 1974. But anyway, something's gone wrong. 1974, they're definitely doing the nav by uh, Loran or Radio Direction Finding. There's a lot of fog up in there as well. So, OK, maybe they're not maybe they're not complete fools. Um, let's have a see. Uh, Ray Kershaw. We've got another person involved now. Ray Kershaw, uh, father of uh, the UK's Nick Kershaw, no doubt. The uh, 90s DJ. Just showing my age there a little bit. He is not current anymore, Chris. Don't mention Nick Kershaw in conversation again. Uh, Ray Kershaw, a marine surveyor representing the boat's insurer, said the two men dropped one anchor, then went below deck. Mm -hmm. Then they dropped another anchor as the sea continued to swirl around them. The keel then struck bottom. Eek. We all know what that feels like. The Coast Guard said they removed the two men at 3.20pm. Uh, By the time Schubach returned the next day, everything, including his own tools, clothing and fishing rods, was missing. Ugh, that sucks. Oh no. People have this stupid idea that they can salvage a boat, said Kershaw, 67, who has been working around boats for 42 years. OK, before we hear anything else from this, let's have a quick show of hands. If a boat goes aground on an, in an area that has a 12-foot tide, that's like 4 metres... Is it then legal to just go and steal everything off it? The answer is no. <laughs> no, it's not. Just because it's touching the bottom. It's not like the floor is lava and, you know, everything gets stolen if you touch the bottom of your boat. Uh, touch the bottom of your boat, rather, on the bottom of the sea. Uh, no, it's just theft. That's exactly what that is. Um, what is Nick Kershaw's... Don't mention Nick Kershaw. What does uh, Ray Kershaw have to say about this? Uh, a boat never loses its ownership, even if it's on the bottom for 20 years. You can't strip a car someone left on Route 128, that's showing local knowledge, while he went for help, can you? Yeah, absolutely. If someone like, parks their car up at the side of the road because it's not working, you can't <laughs> go and rob the wheels off it. <clears throat> Although clearly it's happened. Uh, a boat's not any different. They're nothing but thieves. And this is one of the most flagrant cases I've ever seen. Blocker agreed... That's all we've heard from him. He agreed. And he's seen his share of wrecks in 10 years he spent as a merchant seaman. That doesn't sound good, does it? It was such a beautiful boat, he said. It's a shame this had to happen. Yeah, but as soon as you came near it, it went aground. And you've had 10 years as a merchant seaman and seen your share of wrecks, Mr. Blocker, who had nothing else to say. I blame Blocker for this. Isn't that awful? So imagine that you managed to get a sweet deal with a boat that's been donated to a college. You get it a really good price, even though it's a fancy boat. I've kind of been through this when I actually got my um, Whitbread 60 from California um, that had been donated to a charity by the previous owner. It had hardly any miles on it and we got it. So imagine that had happened. And then actually, well, that boat did go aground uh, going through the Panama Canal on the east side. When you come out, the pilot was convinced that we could pull off to the side of the channel for him to be able to transfer to his uh his uh, pilot's launch and I was saying dude it's way too shallow no 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 go here go here I'm like in the end it's the pilot in the Panama Canal like, who are you gonna believe like me or him well we went aground and uh, he was dreadful and he had still had command of the vessel or so he thought so he's trying to organize getting his launch to pull a race yacht off the mud and in the end I just totally like um yeah 
I won in the who's going to be in charge competition. And uh, then I got them to pull the boat off. Oh, it was so dreadful. But imagine at that point, if the next day I come back and everything that we put on the boat, which cost thousands, uh, had all been stripped off. And just a couple of days later, there's just a shell on the beach. Oh, my God. So anyway, that is a newspaper article from the 1974 edition or one of the 1974 editions of the Boston Globe, the vessel Troll lying in pieces around the town of boston that'd be like the ultimate rebuild wouldn't it we're gonna get come on come on give me that back give me those bolts back we need those um have a listen to this i'm not just trying to plug the mariners library podcast available everywhere that you get your podcast but this is interesting uh write-up this is for yeah an anthology of 24 stories edited by a chap called ira henry freeman and um, who is writing this write-up? I don't know. Somebody from the publishing house has written this. You can see why I chose it. Every true Blue Water man will find a grand entertainment in this salty anthology. Ira Henry Freeman's selection of excerpts from accounts of famous sailing cruises is brimful of the joy and the drama of plunging canvas. Variety is the keynote of this collection of 24 actual sailing experiences garnered from sources as diverse as the personalities of their writers. Here is Jack London's humorous Sharks in the Boatyard, a nautical Mr. Blanding. Close by, George Dibbon's How Rugged Can You Get? The day-to-day account of a desperately gruelling 101-day journey in a 32-foot yawl from Balboa to San Francisco during which the food ran out and the sails were torn ragged and the two two men fell ill of fatigue and malnutrition. White Flannel Days recalls that legendary era when millionaire yachtsmen commanded their schooners from deck chairs while spoon-fed on caviar by uniformed stewards. For contrast, there is Savages to the Leward, an excerpt from the classic adventures of that old sea dog, Joshua Slocum, first man to circumnavigate the globe single-handed in his little sloop, Spray. Stories of storm and clear sailing, shipwreck and rescue voyages. Oh, sorry. Shipwreck and rescue, voyages of enraptured honeymooners and grizzled old salts. They are all here, vigorously jostling one another through the pages of the anthology. Well, (laughs) he finishes up and says, um, in his introduction, Mr. Freeman writes, for all I know, this may turn out to be a subversive book. Conceivably, it could seduce some frustrated breadwinner into sailing away to the South Seas on a little yacht forever. If you're a sailor, either blue water or armchair variety, here is your challenge. Fair winds and an ocean of adventure await you in white sails, shaking. Isn't that a brilliant write-up? So I'm really happy to um, to, to bring that from a complete anonymity into a little bit of the light. Um, this picture of the boat on the beach here, as I was reading that, I was thinking, you know, I've actually seen this for real myself when that boat went aground in the clipper race and we were involved in that. We were literally trying to keep um, Indonesian fishermen from going ashore and getting onto that boat because we knew that they would strip it in a couple of days. I shouldn't be so surprised. You know, as I get a little bit older, I start to realize that the news that's going around is just being recycled and recycled and recycled. People are interested in the same things, always have been and always probably will be. So whenever something comes up, they have to always present it as though it's brand new, absolutely novel. This has never happened before. How unprecedented. If we were to get a story, uh, you know, tomorrow of somebody from, I know, the Newport Bermuda race and the boat goes ashore and everything's uh, sacked from it, it'd be presented as the decay and end of civilization, where the reality is right here, uh, 1974, they're out there <laughs> armed with, what was it, like chains and chainsaws and and screaming from the hull that they are legally salvaging it. Good Lord. There was a case like that in the UK, wasn't there? The South Coast, uh, 10 years or so ago now, where a load of containers 
went over the side of a ship and I think they had, was it like Pampers, Pampers nappies and uh, BMW motorcycles. It's like something for all the family. And uh, people were on the beach stripping the containers of what they contained. And the police were trying to enforce like centuries old uh, salvage laws. Like you can't do this, guys. You can't do it. Uh, I don't know. People, they'll never change. They never have. They probably never will. Um, just unfortunately, our lifespan's not long enough to be able to notice the cycle going round and round. Um, okay, other things here now. Uh, I say the YouTube channel going uh, nicely. Uh, on the last episode of it, I was in uh, Bermuda uh, fixing up the uh, the trimaran, not catamaran, the trimaran that was on Spirit. We'd uh, had issues with the solar panels and the autopilot. Got those things sorted out. And at the very end of the video, for anybody that managed to stick it through to the end, uh, you've rewarded by seeing me smash the boat into the dock and do quite a lot of damage to it. So the next episode is going to be me fixing that up. Um, what I'm doing at the moment is uh, I've created a new um, like set, a new space for filming. Um, I always used to do that in the workshops and in the barn and the other places we lived. Moved house in the last year and had uh, a real struggle with finding a space to do something like this. But I've set myself up in a corner and uh, I recognize the footage that I took in Bermuda of that whole incident. They had some gaps in it which are really hard to plug with uh, just narration over the top. So I'm going to splice in me sitting in the new set kind of talking and talking through how I damaged the boat. I really love sharing anything I can about sailing. Unfortunately, that's when you've done something brilliantly and sometimes it's when you've done something uh, stupid. To give you guys the uh, the inside line, basically what it came down to was uh, I was being blown gently onto the dock in a weather by a weather system um, in Bermuda. Bermuda obviously is uh, six or seven hundred miles offshore from everywhere. It's just subject to whatever's going on in the Atlantic. We knew there was a big weather system coming in and it was the edge of it. Um, the exact angle that it was pushing me onto the dock was exactly the angle that uh, the, the, there was no way to spring off. Uh, this boat's a trimaran. It's got two small outboard uh, hulls. Uh, which are you can't live inside them you can get inside the central section and could kind of crawl around backs and forwards 10 foot but the bow and stern sections are completely sealed off um, and these things have no uh, curve to them whatsoever so it's extremely difficult to spring the boat off in those situations that boat only got uh, an outboard engine uh, connecting it to the ocean for this kind of maneuver and uh, as I was to discover unfortunately during the maneuver the thing that went wrong the outboard bracket which is a big long custom made dropping bracket you drop it with a, a rope system that goes onto one of the winches um, it does not lock down in any way shape or form nor have the weight to hold it down and uh, so when I put the engine into reverse um, I was getting more resistance than I wanted from the uh, the rigging of the boat trying to blow the boat back onto the dock and as I tried to back away from the dock the engine started kicking up out of the water which immediately meant that I didn't have the traction that I needed to draw away from the dock. I'd been, been practicing for like an hour to get the maneuver organized to get the boat at the requisite angle to be able to even back away from the dock you know. As everybody knows, when you're departing the, the dock with a little boat, um, what you want to do is take advantage of the curvature of the hull, have a line connected at the fore point of the boat and leading aft, and at some after position on the boat leading forward. So an aft running spring and a forward running spring. What you'd normally do is if you want to get the boat off and you want to reverse out the dock, you take your, your aft running spring, drive forward onto it, 
when the boat gets a nice curve on a nice uh, little uh, you know twist in there uh, angles away from the dock due to the curvature of the hull then you can back out sharply and get away from the dock it takes just a couple of seconds to get some way on as long as you've got enough speed to have flow across the rudder you'll have good maneuverability away from the dock and you can back off the dock in quite strong winds the majority of the sailing I've done is monohulls. Uh, Multi-hulls is something I've been involved in, but um, I definitely don't have a rounded out skill set with that at all, as is demonstrated by the situation. So I spent an hour problem solving how to get the boat off the dock, where the inside line is I shouldn't have attempted to depart the dock. It was too windy. I, sh I needed another solution. I'd already tried to get a dinghy to pull me off. There's no one available. The weather's coming in. I have to get out. Otherwise, I'm going to be really you know, damaging the boat pressed onto this dock. So there were a few options, but obviously you, you don't move if you think you're going to smash the boat up. So I, I should have come up with another solution. I didn't. I started to do the maneuver successfully, got the boat at uh, like a 45 odd degree angle. Later on, speaking to the guys at the marina, they're like, yeah, we watched you. We watched you like, oh, there he goes. He's completely clear of the dock. And then, unfortunately, the engine kicked up out of the water because I put a little bit too much throttle on, um, not realizing that was going to be an issue. And as soon as that engine started to pop out of the water, that uh, trimaran has got a wing mast, which means that with the wind that I had, I already had uh, a problem that now suddenly... The, the mast is trying to sail the boat forwards and the engine's kicking out of the water that's meant to be drawing it aft. And of course, as always happens, that was the exact moment that a little front came through and suddenly got 25 knots sideways rain. And uh, well, what happened was the boat drove forward, the wing mast drew the boat forwards and the uh, bob stay underneath the bowsprit um, on the central hull caught on one of the cleats on the dock. The boat immediately pivoted. It's a trimaran. You've got two, obviously, outboard hulls. The center one is now caught on a cleat on the dock, and the other hull rotates around, and this is, dock is hundreds of feet long, so it could so easily have missed everything, but no, of course, the geometry has to work out perfectly that the other hull rides up onto the dock straight into a cleat intended for a super yacht, and it just takes a massive bite out the front of the hull uh, <laughs> like uh, like one of those Spitfire aircraft with that little mouth kind of drawn on the front with the teeth. It looked like that, but carbon fiber. And um, yeah, it wasn't nice. So the underlying thing was um, probably like overconfidence and uh, too much uh, you know used to that situation. I've been to Bermuda a lot. I've come off that dock in big boats on my own, um, absolutely successfully number of times. I've definitely got the Open 60 uh, off the dock there in lots of wind. I've definitely got the Volvo 60 off the dock there in lots of wind. Um, and I'm doing it on my own. So I guess I was just too familiar with it, it was, the, was the problem. And I wasn't thinking about the fact this was an entirely different situation with different limitations. And uh, one of them being the wing mast, one of them being the, the lightness of the hull, the lack of grip in the water, and the other one being, in fact, it was an outboard engine and not uh, an inboard engine, which you know, wouldn't cavitate, wouldn't kick and move its relationship to the water. So I learned a lot. I learned a lot uh, when that went wrong. Um, when the uh, accident happened, I was very happy that the uh, you know I didn't get myself worked up. The guy on the dock was actually getting more worked up. The guy from the marina who came down to help and was brilliant was getting more excitable than I was until the point it's like, hey, buddy, calm down a bit here. You know, it's not even your boat. Um, we've got to get the boat secured and then as quickly as possible get a bag, some kind of covering over the carbon so it doesn't get exposed to the rain. Otherwise, you're going to have issues trying to dry it out uh, when it comes to the repair. So what then ensued is, uh, you know, skate forwards. It worked out completely fine. 
the repair was assessed and was then uh, filled and fared when we got to Boston and it's absolutely fine doesn't require any further work but uh, I had to do it alongside the dock there was no way that anybody in Bermuda is just going to suddenly turn around and 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 rebuild the front of a calm fiber and Kevlar race boat uh, hull uh, as quickly as I needed them to for me to like you know preserve the schedule of my life I'm only expecting this trip to take x amount of time I don't I've already stopped off in Bermuda I don't have like you know two extra weeks or something in my life while I wait for someone to make availability to fix something I just got to do it myself I do have this basic set of skills so uh, set forward and uh rebuilt the hull when you cannot get into that area of the boat had to rebuild the bow set from the outside so um that's coming up that's going to be an interesting one to uh to see on youtube i hope and i say i've got this new uh setup this new uh studio area now in the uh the the, the little uh, shed here the kind of workshop shed it's kind of cool uh, we've been able to make it into dual purpose so i'm going to explain uh on the youtube video how that went down even though the actual footage for that bit is is missing but um it was pretty dramatic at the time, as you can imagine. Um, it was funny because in that uh, video that I did on YouTube, I was talking about the fact that I wanted to go around and visit other people's boats more, that I'd had a very positive experience with the cruisers I'd met in Bermuda and hadn't really interacted in, in, with that community before. I was on race boats, were coming and going and working. It's, it's just not time to hang out. Um, suddenly had already done that, and when this this uh, accident befell me, um, they were happy to help me out in all sorts of ways, which was great. And borrowing a, a grinder and a sander and uh, I think a hacksaw and a few other things um, to, to speed the repair along made it all uh, very, very, uh, well, pleasant, I guess, in the end. It's, you know, as pleasant as it can be to have to fix the bow of the boat that you just stuffed into the wall. But uh, yeah, let's have a see if we can get aboard other people's boats. It's also a great opportunity just to sticky beak at other people's uh, kits and hear their stories and all the rest of it. I'm quite looking forward to it. Okay, well, we're going to be a little bit quicker this week because I'm actually going to do another one of these uh, on Monday. This is Friday now. We're going to see if we can do shorter ones, but a little bit more often. Um, it's very important for me to kind of get the numbers back up there. I have a potential sponsor sitting off to one side, which I'm kind of excited about. And I want to make sure I get my numbers back up to what they were. Um, the way it goes with podcasts, you know, anything over a couple of hundred people listening to a podcast puts you like in the top 50% of podcasts. But you really want to be up in a couple of thousand to attract uh, some kind of sponsorship or, or tie-in deal. So I've actually got an insurance company that wants to uh, share um, like a finder's fee with me, essentially. What they offered me was that I would make 20% off everybody's premiums who booked through me. And I went back and negotiated and said... I would uh, give a 10% discount and, and kind of lose uh, 10% of the commission, um, thinking that that would be a more useful product to, to the end users. And, and they've agreed to that. So that's good. But I have one or two questions which I want to get answered first because I, you know, I have to get my boats insured. It's an important part of anything that we're doing. But um, my knowledge of insurance is uh, around boats is, well, probably as much as yours is. You know, it's, it, you do it, you make sure they've got paperwork, it's all the things that are covered that need to be covered, and then you go on from there. I want to get a little bit more of an understanding of what my role is and uh, what exactly this company is offering and how solid it is before I start to offer it to anybody else. Um, from what I've I spoke to their chief operating officer a couple of days ago and it seems very very positive it looks like some negative stories about them have gone onto the internet and that's about it but uh, she was quite candid and said send me any questions you've got and I'm happy to do a podcast and answer everything so I think if I've got uh, an insurance uh, professional who's willing to come on the show talk for an hour or two 
about boat insurance in general, about their specific product, talk about the issues they've had in the past, the successes, what they can offer for each individual sailor. So we get a complete uh, understanding of it. And then I offer that discount um, on, on the back as a partner for the podcast. It's beneficial for me because <clears throat> suddenly, you know, there's a way of getting a little bit of cash in for doing this instead of it just being uh, a one-way street. The other thing is beneficial for you guys because 10% off your insurance is, you know, always going to be useful, right? So um, if you've got any questions that you'd like to put to somebody uh, who's in insurance with, with sailing boats, uh, send them to me now at csmthemariner at gmail.com and no doubt you can help me come up with a, a much more competent set of questions to ask. Uh, my experience of insurance recently, just going through so many brokers trying to get what it is that I wanted for my particular boats, basically impossible. And I heard that a lot throughout the industry. Um, it's something that's a real bane for me for the things that I want to do with sail training. But I'm sure you also have got your own experiences with uh, with insurance. It's one of those very delicate areas. When I did that um, ABC of sailing, the uh, eyes for information is what I did. Insurance was the other option I had. But, um, you know, again, I'm not the person to be talking about that. Kind of like the isobars and the weather. It's uh, These are my uh, weak areas. So I reckon if I get somebody to come on and talk about insurance and then their product that they've described, uh, you know, we've got all the details on it. I'm happy to offer a discount on that. I think the next person we get in is a meteorologist and they can, <laughs> I can ask leading questions and we can all sit there and go, yeah, yeah, we knew that. We knew that. But uh, insurance and, and uh, insurance and uh, isobars and weather, definitely two areas of sailing that I think a lot of people close their eyes to and just go, mm -hmm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally covered. So, Okay, well, that's the end of this uh, for this week. I say I'll jump back in with another one uh, very, very shortly. I'm going to do a, a review of Sir Francis Chichester's book, The Romantic Challenge, and talk a bit about Sir Francis Chichester and uh, my developing knowledge about him. Um, we've done this before where I've done like some famous people from sailing and uh, people who I admire. Francis Chichester, I knew enough of his story to be able to identify, yes, this is a book of a sailing master. Let's read it. Um, I didn't know enough to really uh, comprehend it uh, going into the book. So I've learned much more on the way. I'm happy to share that with you and teach and learn a little bit more about Francis Chichester. What always happens on these occasions is someone writes in and tells me something I don't know. So I, I throw it in the air and then you, you take a swing at it if you've got something to share. But um, that'll be the next podcast. That's on Monday. Uh, this is going out now on Friday night, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. I hope that you are safe and sound, enjoying your sailing, having a laugh. Don't beach the boat and then leave it. We've learned that today. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, like 50 years later, people will still be giggling at it. All right, good. Have a good one. I'll speak to you soon. Cheers.